eyes on Eastern Europe as Russia invades Ukraine. In Vienna, meanwhile, the United States and Iran inch closer to a nuclear deal, with critics warning it'll be a shorter, weaker deal than the one agreed to in 2015. Joining us to break it all down, former White House National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. Jared Bernstein is off this week. So much in the news right now. It almost feels like overload. Russia and Ukraine, the Iran nuclear talks. Uh, There's a lot to sort out, a lot to go through, and we have a great special guest this episode to talk about these issues Robert O'Brien served as the 28th National Security Advisor from 2019 to 2021, a period that saw the Abraham Accords breakthrough and normalization between Serbia and Kosovo. Before that, Ambassador O'Brien served in numerous senior government positions, including as Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, or SPIHA, we'll talk about that. He was personally involved in bringing over two dozen hostages and detainees back to America, Holds a JD from UC Berkeley School of Law, received his BA degree in political science cum laude from UCLA. Ambassador Robert O'Brien, thanks for joining the podcast. Rich, great to be with you. Your your, your podcast has uh, gotten very popular. Congratulations. Well, well, we're uh, we're you know wonderfully uh, proud of our fans and and our subscribers and our listeners, and it's because of great guests like you. So thanks for joining us. Uh, we have a lot of breaking news, obviously, by the hour right now that we'll probably want to talk about first on Ukraine, the Russian invasion underway, uh, the U.S. citing intelligence that the Russians are coming in with kill lists, potentially, of Ukrainian officials. You're out uh, in an interview with Axios uh, calling for a government in exile approach for Ukraine. Maybe explain uh, what, what you're thinking a little more for our listeners. Sure. And um, that was an interview I did with Zach and uh, Jonathan Swan uh uh, yesterday that uh, that broke on Axios this morning. It's been getting a fair amount of play. The point I was making was that if uh, I'm not urging Zelensky or his government to leave now, but if the Russians do take Kiev or if they get all the way to Lviv and and in and the invasion proceeds, there there's no way we should put up with a Russian puppet. I mean, uh, whether it's uh, a former leader coming back or a, a new puppet being installed. Uh, Zelensky and his government should leave. They should go to Warsaw or Poland, and just like we did in World War II. Uh, we ought to deal with Ukraine through its elected government, and if that's a government in exile, that's the government we should uh, have our dealings with. We should make sure they retain the UN seat, uh, all the multilateral seats, uh, keep their embassies around the world, and continue to function as the legitimate government of Ukraine if, if Russia invades and, and uh, takes over and occupies the country. And we should refer to Ukraine as occupied Ukraine, uh, not as Ukraine or not as some puppet government, but as an occupied territory of, uh, of a foreign power. Stepping back to the few weeks we've just been through that brought us to, to what's happening unfolding before our eyes today, uh, how do you assess the Biden administration's response to Putin's actions and threats and, and now the invasion? Well, look, I, I, I think recently they've done a, a relatively good job. One thing I was uh, pleased to see is that uh, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, agreed to send 250 tanks to M1 Abram, brand new tanks will be built in Lima, Ohio to uh, Poland. That's something I've been calling for for a year now. And I was I was glad to see that they took that step. A lot, a lot of these things are in the better late than never category, but I, I, I commend them on that. And I think they've done a, a generally good job in, in pulling the diplomatic work together on with respect to the, the Western European countries. The, the problem is, is that as you and I both know, Rich, in foreign policy, peace or strength works. 
And weakness is provocative. And even the perception of weakness, even if a policy looks good on paper, a perception that, a, that your adversary is weak is very provocative and, and can lead to a war or a crisis. And that's what we've had here. And, you know, there's a straight line from the debacle in Afghanistan. Uh, but, it, but it's not just Afghanistan. It's foreign adversaries watching an open border to the south. I mean, an uncontrolled uh, uh, situation in, in the U.S. They've, they're watching things like smash and grab robberies in Los Angeles and Chicago and New York. They're watching inflation take off. They're watching gas prices at over $5 a gallon. And we went from total energy independence under the last administration, our administration, to uh, you know, a situation where the presidents had to be on the phone asking OPEC to increase output. And so I think our adversaries take a look at all of this as a whole and believe that America is weak and that they have an opportunity to advance their interest at the cost of, of our interest and the interests of our allies. And that's taken a particularly uh, menacing turn in, in Ukraine, of course. Now, obviously, there's also critics uh, on the other side of the aisle, uh, some on the what I would call the isolationist right. Uh, we see it on Tucker Carlson and others saying, you know, listen, Ukraine's not our problem. We have no national security interest there. Why, why is the president even bothering to provide any sort of defense equipment for Ukraine? Why are we sending things to Poland? Let Russia take it. How, how do you respond to those sort of voices? Well, I, I still believe, like Ronald Reagan did, that uh, the United States is the last best hope for mankind on Earth and that we're a beacon of democracy for people that are, are in totalitarian and authoritarian countries. I, I grew up in the days of uh, you know, Nathan Sharansky and, and Andrei Sakharov being in the gulag and, and hoping for their, uh, their freedom and, uh, and ability to either go to Israel or to be free within Russia. Uh, so I think we have that role to play. You know, the, the thing about Ukraine is they're not asking for U.S. troops, unlike a lot of other countries. Uh, the Ukrainians are pretty tough. I was there for the 2014 elections. I saw and, and met Ukrainians who gone to the front line and fought the Russians. The only thing they've asked for is equipment. And we've traditionally been the arsenal of democracy. And Ukraine's a democracy. It's a partner. And we ought to provide them with the equipment they need. I, I just think of the $80 billion in equipment we left behind in Afghanistan and think how well the Ukrainians could use that uh, equipment right now fighting the Russians instead of having it fall into Taliban hands. So, look, I'm not advocating, and, and I, I don't know anyone on our side who's advocating that American troops go into combat with Russian troops in Ukraine. But I do believe we should support Ukraine. It's an independent, sovereign country. Uh, they're a democracy. They're a partner of ours. And, uh, and although we don't have a treaty obligation with them like we do with Poland or the Czech Republic or, or Bulgaria or NATO allies, they are a friend, and we should support them in their hour of need. But uh, again, I'm not advocating we send troops, and and again, I don't think that's that's on the table. But but I do want to send them equipment and and give them all the diplomatic and moral support they need. We can't have the world return to the time that territory could be acquired by conquest. I mean, we can't have the Russians, you know, moving their military around and conquering countries and and portions of Europe just because they have the the might to do so. That's a, a very dangerous, uh, barbaric world, and and we can't we can't go to that world and. By the way, Xi Jinping is sitting in Beijing watching this very closely and gauging how he's going to interact with and, and formulate his policy vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan based on how we respond to the, the Russian invasion or the Russian threats against Ukraine. So, you know, this is this is a very important moment for the world and for the United States. And uh, it's not a time to go isolation. And listen, it's not a time to go wobbly. Uh, you know, we've had 20 years of counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that has not been uh, conducted you know, entirely well by our elites and, and Americans are tired of war. And, and, and so it's understandable that folks don't want to go to go to war in a faraway place. Uh, but, you know, th th this is an area that uh, that we need to be strong diplomatically uh, on the economic front uh, with energy security 
and in supporting our friends. And it doesn't mean sending U.S. combat troops into action against Russia, uh, but, it, but it does mean standing up for our, our friends and our beliefs. You brought up Xi Jinping. I think it's an important point. Obviously, China watching this, uh, many people have feared uh, the increasing tensions uh, across the Taiwan Strait, the possibility that, that China might launch uh, something to uh, some sort of military action to take Taiwan. Do you believe, based on your experience, what you see today right now, we have a crisis right now with Russia, one of the two great power competitors of the United States. Could we actually be capable of handling and coordinating two crises at once? Could we deal with a Russian crisis in Eastern Europe and a China crisis in the Taiwan Strait? Well, it's a great question, Rich, and it's a, it's a question of the degree of the crisis. So, uh, you know, that we can certainly, we, we really have two crises right now. I mean, we have uh, Chinese uh, aircraft incur- uh, making incursions into the air identification zone of Taiwan every day, sometimes in, in massive numbers of 20, 40, 60 planes. Uh, we have Russia menacing uh, Ukraine. We actually have a technically an invasion of, a, of Ukraine with the Russian troops going into to the Donbass. Uh, so uh, we have two crises where we can, we can deal with them, but but could we deal with two wars at the same time against two, our great power competitors? Uh, that that's a tougher question. Uh, you know, I, again, I would never bet against the United States, and our adversaries should know that we have exquisite capabilities and can bring them to bear. But the old days of being able to fight, having a, a defense budget and having an army, a navy, air force, marine corps strong enough to fight two and a half wars, which used to be our doctrine that we could fight two two full wars and a regional war at the same time, we're now down to uh, uh, the capability to maybe fight one one and a half war. So, w- w- without a lot of support from our allies, it would be a, a lot to handle an invasion of both Ukraine and Taiwan at the same time. But uh, again, I would caution our adversaries. Uh, uh, never to bet against the United States of America or against our armed forces. We're uh, we're pretty good at what we do, and and we've got two very very strong adversaries, and we've got a challenge in China that we've never seen before in our history. But even with that, I'd I'd take the U.S. Uh, uh, come what may. I have a two part question uh, on sort of the state of the transatlantic relationship right now in the wake of what's going on. The first part I'll ask you is, you know, I'll give voice to critics uh, of the last administration. They would argue that President Trump uh, said uh, negative things very out loud all the time about NATO, that he would degrade NATO, that, that the, the feeling was that the NATO alliance wasn't valued uh, under the last administration. And I understand that, that, there, that you would dispute that. If you look at today and the strength of NATO, um, the the utility of NATO in the face of Russian aggression in Europe. What do you would you say right now to those critics? You know, would say you know you you were degrading NATO when you were in charge, and now look, you need NATO. Well, the first thing I tell them is that the the best thing that ever happened in NATO was the the December 2019 summit in London. As you'll recall, Rich, uh, prior to that summit, we were getting all kinds of criticism that we were damaging the transatlantic alliance. We were da- irreparably damaging NATO by demanding that the members pay 2% of their GDP, which, by the way, the members had all agreed to do uh, because we had a threat against Russia. And and we were simply pointing out that the members should, should meet their obligations and, and live up to the pledges that they'd made. But we went from a situation where we had four countries uh, uh, including the U.S. paying their two percent to having you know ten or eleven. In fact, we had a lunch at that NATO. We called it the two percenter lunch, and uh, and we hosted all the heads of state at that lunch that were paying the two percent of their GDP as they promised. And and we had a couple of countries scrambling at the last minute trying to get into the lunch, uh, desperate, arguing that uh, that we should count what they pay for their local police and and various things to meet the two percent. But the point is, 
we created this this uh, goal and, and gave it value, and and that's something President Trump was was very successful at doing. We walked away from that summit, and I spent a lot of time leading up to the summit and at the summit with Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, who became a good friend, uh, trying to get the Europeans to pay their fair share because it, number one, it was the right thing to do, and number two, it shouldn't be up to the U.S. taxpayer to defend Europe. Uh, Europe's an incredibly wealthy continent, and and uh, and, and the countries within Europe are wealthy and and uh, and affluent, and and they should pay for their own defense. And they, they're democracies; they want to remain free. They they have a stake in the game. And we walked away from that summit with a commitment of four hundred billion dollars in additional defense spending, by paid by non-U.S. NATO allies over ten years. And, and and that was several years ago. Now a lot of that money is 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 made its way into the procurement of platforms and and. Increase in size of the military, and how prescient was it looking back uh, in light of today's crisis that we went to the mat and that we got NATO to invest in in its own defense and and prepare for for the dark days ahead. And uh, so I, so one of the proudest moments I had in, in as a national security advisor was at that summit uh, meeting with the foreign leaders was was having the, the so many countries step up to their two percent pledge. And, and getting that ultimate deal with, with uh, Stoltenberg and, and the other NATO heads of state. To, uh, and, and it was really President Trump's victory, not mine, but uh, uh, to, to get us to the point where that NATO was going to commit to this $400 billion in increased spending. And, and now, you know, thank, thank goodness, it's on the way because that's how we're going to get those 250 M1 Abram tanks to Poland. It's how we're going to get F-35s to, to various countries, uh, uh, the Netherlands and and now, when we talk about NATO, we rejuvenated NATO, and so now you have Finland and Sweden, that both countries have very capable militaries, share our values, and we'd love to have them as members of NATO, at least I would. And I think one of the things that the Biden administration could do right now is to stoke that interest in Stockholm and Helsinki and joining NATO, watching what's happening in Ukraine. And that would be one of the biggest penalties that we could impose on Vladimir Putin is to have a stronger, bigger NATO, especially with with countries like Finland and Sweden, that it would, would also give us a lot of uh, capability in the Arctic area of operations. Join NATO. That that would make NATO stronger, and it would defeat the purpose. He's he, Putin's trying to weaken NATO and drive wedges into NATO, get on NATO's border, push push you know, our advanced weapon systems out of Poland and Romania, and and the Czech Republic. Bringing in Sweden and, and Finland would be an utter defeat for for Putin and so we ought to be looking at that option as well. So that actually opens up my second part of the question which was the flip side which is if there's somebody to blame right now in weakening uh, the power of NATO in splintering NATO it would appear to me to be coming from the German government uh, over the last not just several months but several years the Nord Stream 2 pipeline pushback uh, on shutting that down giving Putin the ability to extort Europe at a time of his choosing through energy supplies uh, it looks right now to be that there's a dilution going on in the sanctions being threatened against Russian banks and oligarchs we may see some but not sort of the most extreme sanctions that could actually deal a blow because of German pushback. And we see the administration sort of carrying that water back in, in how they lobby Capitol Hill against, against certain bills. What do we do if within the NATO alliance we have sort of this German centerpiece pushing back on the toughest possible economic responses because they fear their own financial consequences because of their financial ties to Russia? Yeah, we're, we're you know, it's... It's amazing that we're back to talking about the German problem in, in Europe, right? I mean, it's uh, 
and, and it's a real problem. It was a problem with Angela Merkel. It was a very strong chancellor. And, and you know, what, what I've said about Germany is, is Germany is doing what's good for Germany. They've been running a German first foreign policy for many years now, and, and we still bask in the the warm glow of the post-war relationship we had with West Germany when West Germany was a frontline state. And you know, I remember as a young man in, in college going through Checkpoint Charlie into the very dark and dystopian East Germany uh, and, uh, and walking past the, the Alsatians and the, the East German guards and, and then getting back to Berlin and, and you know feeling the embrace of the West and freedom. And, and so we've got these very, very good, good feelings about Germany. But, but for a long time, Germany has been running a German first foreign policy, and that means an economic policy. That means they get very cheap commodities, oil, gas, natural resources from Russia, which is what they've always wanted uh, throughout their history. Uh, they brought in very inexpensive labor by exploiting the, the, these poor immigrants from the Middle East, Syrian war refugees, Iraq war refugees, Afghans. They bring them in and to work, work at low wages in, in German factories. And then they pump out, you know, millions of Audis and BMWs and Mercedes and sell them to the Chinese. Uh, I mean, if you've ever been to Beijing, it's when you walk out, you feel like you're there's a sea of black all around you because the uh, the Chinese communists love nothing more than driving their uh, their German sedans. And so it's uh, you've never seen more Audi and Mercedes and and BMW sedans than uh, than you see in Beijing. And then they get the U.S. taxpayer to foot the bill for whatever the defense is. So. You know, it's a great policy if you're German. It's not so great if you're a Uyghur or a Hong Konger or a Taiwanese or a Ukrainian or uh, an American taxpayer. But if you're German, it's a terrific foreign policy. And and I, I think what's happened is a lot of people have, have blinded themselves to what's really going on with Germany because of the the transatlantic and and you know Western alliance and the glow of the old days of going to you know a lot of our foreign policy elite who are my age or older remember the days of going to West Berlin and. Uh, and and the, the, the good old days of the, the alliance with Germany, and it's kind of a socialist aspect to it that the Democrats uh, really love. But we have to understand that the Germans have been putting Germany first. What I've suggested that we do, and that's fine because we should put America first. I, you know, I can't blame the Germans for, for putting their own interests first, but uh, we gotta put American interests first. We gotta put our, the interests of our Polish allies, our Romanian allies first. And I've said for a long time, we tried to do this in the Trump administration, let's move our non-logistical troops, uh, you know, everybody with the airmen at the, the bases and the hospitals and the doctors and nurses, let's move all our troops, and there are 30 to 50,000 of them, let's move them out of Germany and, and move them into Poland, uh, move them into Romania, uh, move them where, you know, take some of them and put them in the Pacific, whether it's Palau or Marshall Islands or uh, Robertson Barracks in Australia or uh, Schofield Barracks in, in Hawaii and the Aleutian Islands. Let's actually have that pivot to the Pacific and, and let's move our troops to the front lines against the Russians to deter them. Because Germany is no longer a frontline state. They don't need that many troops there. And, and they're not coming anywhere close to paying their 2% of NATO. So uh, let's put the Germans in a position where if they feel they need to defend themselves, they can raise, the Germans can, can man the German army and, uh, and they can pay for their own tanks and aircraft. And, and we can help our allies on the, on the front line, whether it's the front line in the Indo-Pacific or the front line in Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, I'd note, and I'm going to transition here a little bit to uh, to talk about Iran, but it's actually staying with Ukraine a bit. The same day that the U.S. and Europe are supposedly rolling out sanctions against Russia, 
you see the Russian ambassador in Vienna tweeting out photos of close coordination on delivering an Iran deal. He's sitting at the table with the EU, you know, foreign policy chief talking with the United States, working with, with them on a deal. We saw readouts from Secretary Blinken's call uh, with Foreign Minister Lavrov a couple weeks ago. Supposed to be a call about Ukraine. The readout says they talked about, you know, please keep helping us to get an Iran deal. If you're Putin in Moscow, how do you read that? Because the administration would say, well, we can have more than one relationship with Moscow at any given time. It's multifaceted, and we'll deal with with Ukraine in a silo. Does it, can Putin see this in a silo? No, he doesn't, and he and he uses our dependence on him to in this desperate attempt that we're making to to reenter the JCPOA. Uh, he's using that uh, for his own diplomatic purposes, the same way China was, would use John Kerry and uh, climate change to get their way in, in our bilateral relationship with China, which is very one-sided, very not, not good for the United States. But they use uh, our adversaries use these desires that, that we have and and that we that we we, we put out in such uh, you know, we put we put billboard put them on billboards and put spotlights on them. And so when the Russians see us racing to appease Iran and willing to do anything to, to revive the JCPOA, which has really become more of a religion uh, for some on the left. I mean, I, I understand that Barack Obama, President Obama, didn't have a lot of accomplishments as president. He had Obamacare on the domestic front, and that's been a failure. But they'll die to the last man uh, or you know, lose the last congressional election defending Obamacare. And on the foreign policy front, he had one accomplishment uh, in their view of JCPOA. Now, I think it was a, it was one of the worst deals since Munich. I said it at the time. Uh, uh, really, a, a poor showing for U.S. diplomacy. But in the in Obama world and in the de- in the Democrat world, it was a, a glorious uh, non-treaty that they entered into to to change the way the Middle East would operate. And if we, as the president said in his uh, one of his inaugural addresses, we'll extend our hand. You know, if you'll unclench your fist and then there was this there was gonna be this beautiful partnership between iran and the united states and what happened is iran took all the money we gave them, including the cash that we paid for hostage releases and instead of giving it to the iranian middle class instead of building iran uh, they put it into their nuclear program they put it into proxy wars in iraq and syria and lebanon and, and yemen and destabilized the entire middle east and, th- and that's what they did with their winnings from the, the first jcpoa and as the Israelis brilliantly exposed with an incredibly daring intelligence operation, everything they told us about the nuclear program was a lie and a fraud. And and so to, to be so eager to get back into the JCPOA sends just an absolutely terrible message, not just to the Iranians, but also to the Chinese and to the, the Russians. And so it's a it's disappointing that as we're dealing with this, this crisis in Ukraine, in which it really is a Munich moment in Europe, we're actually engaged in a, you know, maybe, maybe Vienna is going to replace Munich as the, uh, the, the new symbol of appeasement. We're, we're going to, we've got this other Munich moment going in Vienna with the JCPOA. So it's, it's incredibly concerning, disappointing, and again, it contributes to this perception of American weakness. And we are hearing reports now coming out of Vienna that they are close to some sort of uh, announcement on a nuclear deal. Uh, the The details are still loose, but what we can tell from press reports, the sunset provisions of the JCPOA would, would stay in place. 
uh, as would most of its caps, but the U.S. would provide uh, additional sanctions relief. All that the Trump administration imposed after leaving uh, would likely come off, including terrorism sanctions, etc. Iran would be able to hold on to some of these advanced centrifuges uh, that they've worked on over the last two years uh, and potentially other nuclear advances. So, so that's what's unfolding. Uh, the White House line, um, and this is my question, is that it's your fault, basically, right? It's President Trump's fault. The Trump administration left a deal that was working. Uh, maximum pressure forced Iran into these nuclear advances, and this is now the best deal they can get, you know, with the alternatives being a nuclear weapon or war. Um, and so, you know, congratulate us, we, we, we got a deal in, in Vienna. How do you respond to that criticism and, that, and those arguments that we're going to be hearing out of the White House? Well, it's, it's a fallacy. The deal wasn't working. It was a terrible deal. Uh, as I, I just mentioned, Iran was supporting terrorism all over the region and, and, and putting the region in flames, number one. Number two, they were involved in, in massive advanced uh, missile research and, and testing, which was not covered by the first JCPOA. So they were, they were developing the delivery systems because that was, quote, legal under the JCPOA. And as soon as the sunset provisions went into place and Iran became a recognized nuclear power, they'd simply marry up the, the devices, the nuclear devices with the delivery systems, and we'd be in a, a terrible position. What we did in the Trump administration is we put Iran in a box and had crippling sanctions on Iran. Uh, we, we stopped. I mean, it got to the point where you know Hezbollah couldn't pay its bills because they couldn't get any money out of Iran. Uh, we were really drying up their funding for terrorism. We were drying up their funding for their proxies. We were drying up their funding for their nuclear program, for their missile program. And that's, that's how you handle Iran. You had to cut them off. And, and unfortunately, uh, the sanctions today aren't, aren't really being enforced, and we're in this headlong rush to get whatever deal the Iranians will give us. I mean, it's a, I mean, we're, we're, we're beggars in the bazaar and, uh, and, and just getting manhandled in these negotiations. And it's, it's, it's incredibly unfortunate. I mean, you know, there, there have been certain areas where the, the Biden administration, I, and I, I've complimented them, they've done some, some good things in Indo-Pacific, they've done some good things in Europe. Uh, I'll tell you one place where, where they, they just have not distinguished themselves is Iran. And again, I think it's because this JCPOA has taken on the the significance of some sort of a religion. Many of these folks were in the Obama administration. Many of them actually worked on the JCPOA. And so so getting it back is is something that's incredibly important to them symbolically, uh, even though it's detrimental to U.S. national security. And it's, it's very unfortunate. One of the most controversial elements of the deal that's forthcoming, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, is the likelihood that President Biden will lift terrorism sanctions on Iran, Central Bank of Iran, National Iranian Oil Company, the tanker company, the petrochemical company. Uh, there's even talk of rescinding the foreign terrorist organization uh, designation uh, of the IRGC. Uh, what, what Rob Malley, the special envoy for Iran, will say and has said uh, over the last year is that these sanctions were illegitimate, that they were not put there uh, under legitimate uh, justification, that it was just to make it harder to go back to the JCPOA. Uh, how do you respond to that as having been the National Security Advisor when the Treasury Department put many of these terrorism sanctions in place? Well, there's no question that Iran's the leading state sponsor of terrorism in the world, and they have been for many years. So I don't, I don't know where Rob Malley could, would or could, could say that. It's, uh, uh, the, the fact is you can ignore Iranian terrorism around the world. It's directed you know, not just uh, at, at folks in Iran, not just at folks on the border, and not, not just at folks in Lebanon and Syria and Iraq and uh, in the Gulf, but, but it's directed against Americans and, and Westerners. Uh, there was a, a recent attempt to, to actually blow up a, uh, a rally in which Louis Free and Rudy Giuliani and others were going to attend. So 
Uh, they've been caught red-handed uh, with their terrorist activities for for many years, and so you know it's to to, to now de-designate the guard and and other Iranian institutions that are intimately involved in financing this terrorism. A, it's going to make the world a more dangerous place, and B, it sends a terrible message to our allies in the region, whether they're our allies in the Gulf or ally Israel or allies in Europe, and uh, and, and it's it's not going to end well. There are reports that a number of U.S. hostages are likely to be freed as part of the deal. Um, Rob Malley made a statement saying that that would likely have to be part of the deal. Now, obviously, there's a difference between a hostage exchange versus you know, paying for hostages with cash. And we remember the pallets of cash uh, in the last deal in 2015. You were the president's chief hostage negotiator before you were national security advisor. These issues are very near and dear to your heart. You know the people involved here who are being held by the regime. Uh, how do you respond initially to these reports that there will be some sort of uh, a release of our hostages as part of the deal? Well, I, I don't think they can do the deal and, and leave you know, the hostages behind. And so they, they have to get the, politically, they have to get the hostages out. The, the problem is what they pay for the hostages. And, and we didn't pay for hostages. Uh, we, and we, we got Wang back. We got Zaka back. We, we got others back from, from Iran during the Trump administration at a time when we had maximum pressure on the Iranians. So uh, I, I assume there'll be some sort of concessions. And, and then what will happen is just like after the JCPOA, uh, when when hostages were released in exchange for, for not just monetary relief, but, but literally pallets of cash that were flown into the airport in Tehran, uh, new hostages were immediately taken. And uh, because you, you, put a pri- you put a value on the hostages. And so there are so many American dual citizens uh, uh, Iranian Americans that travel back and forth to Iran. There's an unlimited supply of potential hostages for the Iranian government to take, and and they understand that that hostage diplomacy uh, works. It works especially well under Democrat administrations. And so, uh, my my guess is as soon as these hostages are released, and I and I, I you know the Namazis are, are wonderful people. I want to see them get out. I want to see the other hostages get out. I mean, what happened to Siamak Namazi is a it's just heartbreaking. It broke my heart that, that I left office both as a hostage envoy and national security advisor without getting him home and without getting his dad home, but uh, Bakir. Uh, and so I, I hope they're released. I hope the others are released as well. But my, my assumption is that the Iranians will immediately restock their cabinet of hostages and then start using them as negotiating and bargaining chips uh, moving forward. So we're going to introduce our listeners uh, to an acronym that they likely have never heard before, the SPIHA, the SPIHA, one of those uh, uh, inside the beltway. It's like a beltway inside a beltway to really know what a SPIHA is. But you were the SPIHA, the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs. Uh, likely the first time any of our listeners have gotten the opportunity to hear from somebody who had that job, that essentially the president's chief hostage negotiator. What's a day in the life like for that, for that job, for that person? Well, look, every day is different, and uh, the position was created at the end of the Obama administration after many, many Americans were taken hostage, and uh, and I think it was a, a good response to the uh, the crisis that uh, the the Obama administration was facing. You know, when, when I took over, the, uh, the the memo from the State Department said that uh, diplomacy is our first resort uh, to rescue American hostages and detainees, and we only look at military uh, rescues as a last resort. I changed that memo. I said our first resort uh, will be for a military rescue. That's why our special forces, our Delta Force and and SEAL Team Six, were originally created back in the Iran, the original Iranian hostage crisis. Everyone forgets that Iran took Americans hostages for 444 days. Our diplomats, our embassy in Tehran, uh, at the end of the Carter administration, 
and we originally stood up our special forces to do hostage rescue. And so I said, our first resort is going to be to do a military hostage rescue. And gosh, there was ringing in the hands and gnashing of the teeth in the State Department. And I said, well, I'm, I'm changing it. And if you don't like it, get Secretary Pompeo or President Trump to change it. And and neither of them did. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I took a, a more robust approach. But every, every case with wrongful detainees, those are people held by rogue governments or uh, that are trying to use Americans as leverage against us as the Iranians or hostages held by uh, groups like JNM in, in Africa, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. Uh, every case is different. And I was fortunate because I worked for President Trump who made it a, bringing Americans home a very high priority. When folks ask me what America first foreign policy means, to me it meant never leaving an American behind. And it didn't matter why they were there, if they were ill-advised in traveling to a country, if they were uh, journalists, if they were aid workers, if they were missionaries, if they were tourists, uh, you know, whatever their religion was, whatever their color was, whatever their politics was, we didn't care. And I never, President Trump never asked me about any of those things. He just said, get the Americans home. And so every day was different. One day might be uh, working with our, our the great warriors in the Pentagon to uh, to rescue people as we did with Walton at the towards the end of the administration or the, the rescue efforts we made for King and Weeks in Afghanistan. Uh, other days might be negotiating with a third party uh, government like uh, the UAE, which uh, their, their special operations uh, units and intelligence helped us bring back Danny Birch from Yemen. Uh, it might mean working with uh, uh, even a government that we've got good relations with, but a, a corrupt member of that government has, has taken someone uh, uh, wrongfully. We had that with uh, Louis Andrade in Colombia. So, so the negotiations are different for, for every case. The, the military options are different for every case. But uh, President Trump uh, brought home over 55 Americans who were either held hostage or wrongfully detained, and he used every every tool in the toolkit. Uh, uh, in, in some rare cases, we did some prisoner exchanges. We would never exchange a terrorist or a violent criminal, but if there were a sanctions issue uh, and someone was going to be released soon, we we used that to our advantage to, to trade to get Americans home. So we, we had lots of different tools in the toolkit. The one thing we never did is we never paid for a, a hostage. We didn't want to create a, a market so that we relieve the misery of one family and one hostage only to create misery for another family and another hostage. And that's what happens when you when you give concessions and pay ransom. And we never did that. But uh, we used a lot of tools and we were creative and uh, and it, it was a blessing to bring people home. But the, the toughest part of that job, Rich, is yeah, every day you bring someone home, it's terrific. But I, I go home at the end of the day, even on the days, the, the good days where we got somebody out of a place like Yemen or you know, Syria or uh, Colombia or Venezuela, wherever it was. And I'd go home and I'd think about someone like Austin Tice, uh, who's still held captive in, in Syria, a great young man, and, and Jeff Woodkey, who's being held by Jane M. in Mali, and, and other hostages, the Namazis in Iran, and uh, uh, worry about them and their families and, and feel like I hadn't, hadn't done a full day's work because I hadn't gotten them home yet. You brought up UAE Special Forces in that summary, and it's a great segue to the last topic I want to bring up before our lightning round, where we will ask you some fun personal questions. Uh, Abraham Accords. You were the National Security Advisor uh, for the Abraham Accords breakthrough. How do you assess where the Accords are today? Uh, Where do you see it going? Are there other countries you're eyeing that you think could join the Accords? Obviously, we're thinking a lot about Saudi Arabia. and Basically, my question is, from where it left off when you left office to where it is today, are there things you were surprised have happened or you were surprised things that haven't happened? 
Well, I'll tell you what, what I'm surprised has happened is how durable, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm, 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 uh, I'm happy that the Accords have turned out to be so durable, uh, even without a, a lot of nurture from the U.S. And, and there's been some support for the Abraham Accords. And, I, and again, I'll, I'll give the Biden administration credit for here for, there, there was some initial talk about changing the name from the Abraham Accords, but uh, I, I think people thought that was, was ridiculous to be like trying to change the names of the Camp David Accords because... It was Jimmy Carter that negotiated them. So, so I'm glad we got past the silliness, but I think there's been, been some support for the, the Accords. It, it obviously didn't take the high priority it did during the Trump administration. But what, what I've seen is how durable the, the Accords have been among the parties themselves. So you watch what's happening between Israel and the UAE and the, the high levels of cooperation on the economic front, on the intelligence front, on the military front, on the, the military sales front, on the trade front. It's really been impressive to see because I think what happened is we, we were the, the matchmaker, so to speak, but, but these countries really had, uh, it, 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 it was a marriage that was ready to take place. They, they had so many interests that they had in common that once we could get over you know, the hurdles and, and, and the history and sit folks down together and, and let them talk to each other and, uh, and work together, I think they realized how uh, complementary the, uh, their economies and their, their, the, the financial centers in the UAE with the tech sector and in Israel. And by the way, it's helped the U.S. because the tech sector in Israel was having to turn to China for investment. The Chinese were trying to use that to exploit uh, the, the brilliant tech sector that's, that's one of the, the miracles of the world, the second Silicon Valley in Israel. And now the, the Israelis are turning to the UAE for funding, and, and we've kind of iced the Chinese out of the, the Israeli tech sector in, in many ways. But it's such a complementary relationship between the countries. And now uh, Bahrain is getting involved. You know, Sudan and Morocco, of course, have, have developed you know, good relations with Israel. Uh, the Moroccan relationship is really strong. On a human level, one of the things that's, that's impressive is, is to see the religious freedom that that's being encouraged. So, uh, you know, I, I've seen on Twitter, and I'm sure you have as well on Instagram, bar mitzvahs that are taking place in, in Abu Dhabi and, and Dubai. And, and you've got Arab pilgrims who would have never thought to go to the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the, and the, and the Temple Mount that are, that are traveling from the Gulf states to, to go visit an important uh, site for, for the religion of Islam in Jerusalem, the, the great holy city for the Abrahamic faith. So, that, that's pretty impressive. We've got uh, Jews from Morocco who haven't been able to go back and see their parents and their grandparents' graves at the cemeteries in Morocco and have strong relationships. There was such a, a great Jewish community, a thriving Jewish community in Morocco that for the most part up and left for, with some exceptions to, to Israel. Now they're, they're able to go back home and, and see where their grandparents lived and, and go visit the, uh, uh, the final resting places of their family members. So there, there's just so many amazing things that have happened from the Accords on a you know economic level, humanitarian level, defense level, intelligence sharing level that uh, I think it's going to be one of the durable uh, accomplishments of the Trump administration. I told that to the president recently, and uh, you know he kind of smiled, but I said, "Look, your legacy is going to be as a peacemaker." And uh, and I think 50 and 100 years from now, folks are going to look back at the Abraham Accords, and and they're also going to look at what happened in Serbia, Kosovo, with Ambassador Grinnell, and. And the Kosovar is a Muslim-majority nation. This didn't get a lot of attention. Kosovo moved its embassy to Jerusalem, uh, which uh, at the same time we got the Abraham Accords done. So there were really some important breakthroughs on that front, and those breakthroughs have, been, have, have shown themselves to be surprisingly uh, durable and strong uh, uh, even after the Trump administration. So I think that's a, that, that's a great legacy of the Accords. Let's move to the lightning round. Uh, we asked these of all of our guests do you have any favorite Yiddish word or phrase uh, that you've picked up over time? 
Mensch. <laughs> ah, it's mensch, a, mensch. It's, it's nice to describe a good guy as a mensch. I think it's a it's a great uh, great word. I, I think I've used that word to describe you uh, one one or two times uh, oh. in the past as well. well so thank thanks you, for Martin. being on. Uh, any favorite Jewish food? Uh, matzo ball soup from Cantor's on Fairfax and uh, in West LA. <laughs> wow, very specific. But, very uh, specific. Thank but, you. That's look, good. I'll also take some potato latkes. Uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, the matzo ball soup at Cantor's is the best. Uh, coolest place you've ever visited as a U.S. official? Uh, as a U.S. official, I'd say uh, Jerusalem. Uh, we, I went uh, during Hanukkah in, in 2020 and, and had the opportunity to go to the, uh, I, I lit a, more menorahs in one night, uh, going to various uh, celebrations than, than I had in my, my life. And uh, one of them was under the wall, and, and uh, the Western Wall. One of them was, uh, was up on the uh, kind of the ramparts of the wall overlooking uh, the, the square uh, above the Western Wall. One was at the, uh, the New Museum of Tolerance. And and that was special. As a non-U.S. official, I'd say going on safari in, in Africa, which I've done many, many times, uh, both in South Africa and also visiting the gorillas up in Rwanda. Uh, was uh, th- Those are, uh, you know, if, if your listeners haven't done that, uh, go to Africa and go on safari. It's pretty amazing. And finally, what is the most off-the-wall place, not Western Wall, but most off-the-wall place you've ever visited as a U.S. official? You know, staying in the region, I, I ended up in Timbuktu, of all places, uh, as the hostage envoy. Really? I was, uh, we were working on, on trying to get some American and French and, uh, and Italian hostages home that were being held in the Sahel. And I got on a C-130J that flown by the Canadian forces, and we flew up to Timbuktu and got off and... I was actually with Chris Miller. He was the, the counterterrorism director at the NSC at the time. He later became our acting secretary of defense. And, and uh, Andrew Neggs, who ran for Congress in Virginia, uh, was, uh, was our Solik Dasdy at uh, the Pentagon. And, and, and the three of us ended up in Timbuktu and got some great photos in front of the Timbuktu airport. Uh, so that's, that's probably the place I never thought I'd, end, I, I'd be, but it was a, uh, uh, you know interesting visit. Well, if we have any listeners in Timbuktu, please send us an email or contact us on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you, and maybe we'll do a live show from out there. Ambassador O'Brien, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Rich, thanks for your service to our country, and, and, and thanks for having me on your podcast. Well, it's a great interview. Appreciate the ambassador's time. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because that's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.